Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Henderson MB Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information on our church, visit hendersonmbchurch.com. I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Have you ever walked into the, into the room when somebody else or other people were watching a movie and there was a scene perhaps on the TV playing that kind of captivated your attention? You're watching this scene unfold and your mind is frantically trying to figure out what's going on in the show and you're, you're seeing the scene unfold. It's like, this is incredible. This really looks good, but what is it? What does it actually do? What's, how does it relate to the greater thing going on? And walking into any type of uh, movie or opening up a book to the middle of the book and beginning to read something and being captivated by what you're seeing or what you're reading is, is, is often so hard to correlate it to the bigger picture, the broader picture of what's going on and how does this encapsulating scene fit into the grander scheme of things. And, and I find that same thing to be true with a lot of Bible study and, and, and stories in the Bible and doctrinal teachings. It's like, well, this is incredibly amazing and captivating, but how does it fit into the broader scheme of, of how this works? How, how, do I, how do I do something with this story? Where do I hang it on the wall in my mind so that I can understand how it relates to the broader picture of everything that's going on in the... In the uh, in the work of God. As I read through the Bible years and years ago, I began to read story after story. I began wondering, how do these things plug in and how do these things fit? And I, and I would learn that later on that there are systems of thought that help us to understand how small parts of the Bible fit to the grander scheme of things. And we would, we would look at those things. One is like systematic theology. Don't, don't fall asleep yet. We're not going to be talking about systematic theology today, but, but that's simply looking at all the individual parts and identifying them and putting them in categories. And all these stories and parts go over here, and here's another one that goes over here. This is about angels and man and sin and salvation and, 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 and Christ and God and Holy Spirit and the Word. And we have all these, these systematic view of, like a shelf, and we, we plug all those verses in there and we look at that shelf and sometimes we rearrange things and if we're needing something or wanting to learn about something we grab something off that shelf and we look at it and we learn it and we put it back on and, and that's how we correlate this idea of bible study another way is to is to look at it through uh, rather than systematic theology like biblical theology or a meta-narrative or grand narrative and what are the bigger pictures of scripture like and when you look at that bigger picture of the Scripture, you see that God is, has created everything that is seen and unseen in all of its splendor and beauty. And that is the creative side of the meta narrative. And then there's this side of the fall where, where we see sin entered in in the Garden of Eden. And so everything has touched, been touched by sin. And so when we look at the world, the institutions of the world, the creation and ourselves and relationships and marriage and, and, and everything there, we see that it's all been touched by the fall. But we also know another part of the grand narrative is the idea of the, um, the, the redemption of, of everything that's been fallen. 
We know from Romans 8 that the, the whole creation groans and eagerly waiting the day of redemption. And we know that Christ came as the Redeemer and has redeemed us through faith in, the, in His blood, in His, in his death, and His resurrection. He has given us eternal life and we've been redeemed. And then God calls us to live out in redemptive ways with one another. We live in redemptive relationships. We help one another. We encourage one another. We support one another. And we're involved in those types of things. And the, the final narrative is the, um, the idea of the restoration, that we know one day things are going to be restored. They're going to be made right. We see that in the Word of God. But when we look at the world today and understand that sin has touched everything, we have to ask ourselves this question, what, do, what then do we do? Because sin has touched me, then I need a Redeemer, and so I turn and look to faith in the finished work of Jesus, and by His grace, He saves me, reckons me uh, as, as being righteous, counts me as being righteous, and seats me with Christ in the heavenlies, and receiving all the blessings of Christ in the heavenly places and that positional truth I, I adhere to and I believe and I, I live in light of that. I, I, I look through that lens at the world around me and say there's a fallen world that needs redemptive work of Christ and God calls us to embrace that world. He calls us into that world so that we wouldn't sit here but we would be trained here and sent out not only with the message of redemption but the activities of redemptive work. You think, well, is there a really need for that? And you look, it doesn't take long to look in our society today and see how sin has touched and has hurt every avenue and every area of, of all of society. It's hurt our marital relationships. Our families are broken and fallen apart and because of sin. And, and, and it's touched our educational institutions. It's t- touched the very nature of, of relationships. Love has been replaced by by sex and truth has been replaced by tolerance function has been replaced by busyness responsibility by shame care has been replaced by survival order has been replaced by control productivity has been replaced by greed and work has been replaced by activity forgiveness has been replaced by hostility learning has been replaced by information Education oftentimes being replaced by just information. And you see all of this counterfeit kingdom and counterfeit world being set up because it's been touched by sin. And again, the question is, how do we respond? And the Apostle Paul, in much of his writing, is dealing with this very issue. How then should we live in a world touched by sin? What does it look like to be part of a redemptive community? And perhaps even more, is there really a purpose in the dysfunction, the chaos that goes on? It's amazing when I ask people this, even in a, like in a Sunday school setting, saying, why are there so much suffering in the world today? And, and I get the typical Sunday school answer, and it's true. It's because it happened in Genesis 3. It's called sin. And sin entered the world because of a choice that Adam and Eve made. And we know from Romans that sin passed all for all have sinned. And this whole headship of Adam, we live in the, in the results or the consequences of the choice that someone else has made. And not only do we live in the consequences of a choice that someone else has made, but we participate in that ourselves, and we have for generations. And so when you look at that whole idea of, of, of chaos and hurt and, and pain and problems in the world, you have to come up to one of four conclusions. Number one, there is no God, and it does not exist, so therefore it doesn't matter. 
That's one of the options, and many people in the world today believe that. They say, you know what, there is no God, there can't be a God, because there's pain in the world, and suffering, and a God would not let that happen. And that leads you to the second option. There is a God, but he does not either know or care. That means he has no knowledge, or he is an uncaring God. And he's a God who is, has wound the clock up, so to speak, in the world, and just kind of let it go, and sitting back just watching. Generation after generation unfold. Or, there's a God who sees and knows and cares, but he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. And that's an impotent God. Who None of these would be, would be um, gods at all. They're all false notions of, of who God is or what a God could be. And, and the final choice is that there's a God who knows and cares and does see, but he has a plan or a purpose for that. And so then we can become empowered to say, you know what, perhaps the things going on in the world today, although a result of sin, God has a purpose and a plan to do something through that. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that's exactly what we see. We see this isolated story. We walked in on the middle of a movie or a narrative, and now we're able to hang this thing on a wall. That God calls you and I to participate in this redemptive work of Christ. You think, wait a second, I just signed up for heaven when I die. I signed up for doing my thing now, and then one day going to heaven and, and being with Jesus. Well, let me tell you what, let's be with Jesus right now. Let's be a redemptive community that's engaged in doing what God wants us to do and what he's created and designed us to do. Paul writes a second letter to the Corinthians. The first one was a letter of rebuke. They were living like babies. They were l- like carnal as living as unsaved, yet they are truly saved and not living according to his will. The second book of Corinthians is really a defense of his ministry. It's a defense of his apostleship. And because people were looking upon Paul's life, this slight man who was not a good speaker, and, and, and he said, and, and having a life filled with problems because every city he went in, he was beaten and, and imprisoned and tortured in some way, ran out of town, and people would look at him and say, how could God possibly be at work in his life? And isn't that the way that much of the unsaved world views Christianity today? How is it possible that God isn't working in the life of that person? Look at their life. They don't have anything. Oh, guess what? Oh, we do. We have a lot. We have Jesus. And in, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul makes a defense that says basically this. Listen. Though it looks as though my life is a wreck and a mess, I am, I am a servant of the living God. I'm connected to the living Christ, and I, and I have a viable ministry, and by the way, so do you. And so 2 Corinthians is, is a letter of incredible encouragement. It's encouragement in the face of obstacles to say, you know what, there is a God, and he has a plan for our lives. He's, he's actively working. He, he looks upon us with love and calls us to worship him in all of his holiness, just as we did here this morning. Listen to these words. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, there he is, he's already starting his defense off, right? And Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all, and all, who all are in Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty typical introduction for a Pauline letter. And then he goes right into this. And you think, wait a second, where are we at? Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with a comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Well, I about had to take out my false teeth to say that. It's incredible. So God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. The Father of mercy. That, that, that Paul recognizes the benevolent work of God, and, and not only in who he is, but what he does. He is, the, he is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And this God of all comfort and Father of mercies comforts us in all the things that we have going on in our life. First up here is the source of all comfort is God. God is the Father of, of mercies. Romans 12, 1, I love that passage. Uh, in, in almost a summary and turning the chapter between who we are in Christ and, and how we then live. In chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Oh, wait a minute, the mercies of God. We are right there again, aren't we? That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Wow, that's our Sunday school lesson today, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we have this encapsulated view of the Christian life, that because we stand under the Father of mercies, we can operate in the power of the Spirit. And God calls us to that. Believers, God calls you in light of what Christ has done, in light of the benevolent position of God as a God of all mercies, and, and a Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, to, to then extend that to other people. He calls us to live in light of that. Philippians 2.1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and your translation should say, oh, and oh, by the way, there is. If any comfort of love, and oh, by the way, there is. If there is any fellowship of the, of the Spirit, and oh, by the way, there is. If there is any affection and mercy, then fulfill these things by being like-minded. God calls us to have the same mind as God, the God of, who is the Father of all mercies. Mercy is both God's provision and it's also his nature. It's not only what he gives you, but it's who he is. He is the God uh, of mercies, the Father of mercies. In second, he, in, in verse 3, he says he's the God of all comfort. I love that. This word comfort is a, is a beautiful word in the original languages, uh, parakalesis, or it's pronounced in the verb parakaleo. Para means to become alongside, and kalesis means to speak. It's a God who comes alongside of us and speaks encouragement to his life. You know, years ago, um, there was this big thrust on being a Christian coach and coaching. And, and I had this really odd view about coaching. I'll just share it with you today because I can. So for me, coaching is like somebody who is out of shape, um, like me, and used to be involved in the game, standing on the sideline yelling at the people who are doing all the work. I get this idea of coaching. And God nowhere in his, listen, nowhere in the word of, of God does he call us to be a coach. Listen, he calls us to be parakaleo or parakalesis is to come alongside someone 
and to speak truth into their lives, into, the, into their ears, and to hold them up. Ten times in 2 Corinthians that word occurs. You should be leaning forward in your seats right now and thinking, oh wow, this is a repeated theme. In fact, it's one of the, it's one of the Apostle Paul's favorite themes. I beseech you, therefore, the word beseech. You've heard that word, Romans 12, or Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I mean, over and over it goes all through the Apollonian epistles. The word beseech is parakaleto. I come alongside. I don't stand on the sideline and yell. You say, hey, get back to work, you lazy whatever Christians. No, it's I'm going to come alongside. I'm going to speak truth in your life as I'm walking down life with you. God calls every one of you to that very thing, to walk alongside the people that are hurting. Because why? Because God is the God of all comfort who comes and walks alongside you. So because God walks with us, he then calls us to walk with other people. Look at verse 4. Isn't that where he goes? Who comforts us in all of our tribulation. Why? So that we can feel good about ourselves and be like everyone else who has no problems. Right? No. Why does God comfort us in our trouble? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. If you like writing in your Bibles, go ahead and underline any. Because, by the way, this means, you know, we have selective things we're able to help people out. Well, I'll help you out if you do this, but if you do this, I'm not helping you out, just so you know. Because that scares me, whatever that is. And the church has a whole list of that's that we're not willing to touch. I will do anything but that. I won't touch that. That's, that's, outside, of the, that's outside of my abilities. That's outside of the will of God. That's outside of whatever. And we'll come up with all types of theology to explain away our inactivity for that. But God who comforts us in all of our tribulations, in all of our trials, so that we may be able to comfort those others who are tempted with any trial or tribulation. Who are in any trouble with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So then we become a conduit or a vessel by which God uses us then to reach out and touch other, the lives of other people. What a powerful idea. I mean, sometimes verse 4 sounds almost like a, in some ways, like a, this dysfunctional support group. Okay, I, I'm getting the comfort of God, and so I'm going to comfort others with the comfort that I've been comforted of God to comfort you, so you can go out and comfort other people. And so we go around and comfort one another. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It is a group of believers doing exactly what God does to us. He comforts us, and then we comfort other people. We become the hands that touch the lives of other people. We become the feet that carry them, the arms that support them, the mind that trains them, and all of those things, the eyes that guide them. We become that to other people. Yes, and we become the hand that holds them back and pulls them out of the fire, as Jude would say, hating, hating even the garment despised by the flesh. We become the hands and feet of God in the lives of other people. God's plan for comfort. There is a dynamic that takes place in the body of Christ when believers encourage one another. When we spend time encouraging other people in the same light with which we have been encouraged, there's a dynamic that happens. I, I would venture to say that in any church in Henderson, Nebraska, or, or in, in, our, in our county, or our region, or excuse me, our area, that is going to be involved in the, in the work of, uh, of encouraging one another, 
is a, is a church that God will use in mighty ways. Because there's a lot of hurting people out there. And I'll tell you why there's a lot of hurting people. Because we have set up a tone in our culture that says it's not acceptable to come to a place like a church and share how we're really hurting. There are certain things we can say and certain things we cannot say about hurting. We have set up a, 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 an, a, a stereotype where we are able to come in and we're able to share certain things as long as those things don't cross the boundaries, those unspoken rules, those assumptive truths that, that guide and, and, and direct our organization. There are certain things we don't talk about. And I think there's a lot of people, not only in this community, but in our whole area. And I've met some of these people that are hurting. They don't have the courage to come out and say, you know what, I'm struggling with this. Because what happens when, we, when they do is they get set aside and say, you know what, I'm going to set you aside. I'm not gonna, I'll, I'll pray for you, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Because I'm not going to get involved in your life because it's, it's, it, I, it, I could get stained. We don't say that, but that's what we believe. But God calls us to engage people in our community, in our church, in our town, or wherever, wherever our sphere of influence is, to engage those people, to encourage them with the courage, the encouragement that God has given to us, to support them. We'll talk more about what that looks like. Older people, let me just say this. Do you know that, that um, your presence, in, even, in, even in coming to church, is a source of, of healing for those people who are facing trials. Here's why. Because when I look at the older people, <laughs> now when I look in the mirror, um, it wasn't that funny. When, when I look at older people, I think about this. Here's a person who has persevered through a lot of trials, okay? And yet they're still here worshiping God. I, I want to tell you something. I need that encouragement. I need to know what it's like to persevere even in the face of obstacles and trials that you've seen over a greater span of years than what I have lived. And I'll tell you what, our young people, they need to see it too. They need to see a life that is committed to persevering in the face of trials and obstacles and all the pressures of life. They need to see someone who's willing to continue to take the next step forward. I'm going to take one more step. I'm going to praise Jesus one more time with one more breath. And time and time again, they see that repeated over and over and over again because that's the encouragement they need to be a light and to be a, a representative for Christ in this community. And it's just encouraging for me to see that. People that are suffering from, from medical trials or whatever, you know, and, and it seems like we've, we've, we've all got something or we've had something or we're about ready to get something. But I want you to know something. You're bringing hope and confidence to others when you share your hurts and your victories with other people. Our children need to see the example of parents who show them what caring for others really looks like. Let me show you what it looks like when we care for other people. Cindy and I joke in our house, like, you know, the only reason we go out and care for other people is so our kids will know when it's time to care for us. <laughs> and uh, that's not true, but we joke about that. God comforts us through other people, and we give God the glory. And we, go out and we comfort people of those other people, and they give God the glory. And they go and do the same, and God comforts all of us so that we will comfort others. In the present tense of this verb, to comfort other people, um, shows that the God who comforts us is continually and actively doing this. This isn't, you know, a sporadic um, 
comfort, that God comforts us, and then we, no, it's continuous comfort. God never leaves our side. He's always with us, always there to guide us, always there to encourage us, always there to comfort us. And then we, in turn, are to do the same thing as with others. And so often we begin with somebody and we, we pull out. We begin, we pull out. Because we get scared, we don't know what to do, or we, we feel like we lack the resources. And God says, hey, just keep walking with them. You know, you keep going, you keep marching down the field. He comforts us in all of our, our tribulations. I, I love the picture of that, the idea of tribulation. The word really means to be pressed together, like literally it's used for a wine press. So like imagine yourself being a grape going through a wine press, like a stone, a big stone rolling over it and getting squished. That's what pressure means. That's the word that's used in the Greek, phlepsis. Phlepsis is a word that means to be smashed, to have a life smashed out of you. How many of you ever felt that way? You do something, I just feel like worn out and squished by life. I feel like I got all the life squished out of me like a grape. And um, that's the idea there. Um, it's also used for the anguish of childbirth, and I know nothing about that. In that one verse alone, um, verse 4, um, that parakaleto is used four times for comfort and encouragement. You know, the, the, the trials that we live in are really a, a, a crucible that, in which God prepares his true servants. We think about, like, you know, why does God need, why do we need to use trials to, to, to create or stimulate growth or dependence upon God or to further the kingdom of God? And, and have you ever thought about this? When are the times that you've been closest to the Lord? I mean, experientially or personally in your life? Is it when things are going great? Or is it in times when you've been under pressure? You've been facing an obstacle or trial that you have no way of getting around on your own. And what are you usually done? You do, you're driven to your knees in prayer. You, you fall before God and you pray. And you say, you know what, I just, God, I need you. Trials have a way of, of becoming the training ground for the Christian life, not a, you know, a sign that God is, is, is not with us. You know, as a pastor for lots and lots of years, I've seen... Uh, people leave the church before, and it, it breaks my heart when someone leaves the church. And sometimes they leave because they want to conceal a problem that they have with a child, and others are facing marital problems, and they don't feel they can reveal them in the context they're in. And others have personal failures they, they can't share, so they leave to avoid embarrassment. We've created a culture in church today where people are not able to fail at anything. So in effect, we, we force people to either lie or hide their pain. And I'll tell you what, there's a, whole, there's a whole world full of churches where people are lying and hiding their pain. Because somehow, in their mind, this is like, well, God must not accept me if, if he would know the truth about, God knows the truth, friend. He knows everything about you. He knows stuff you're not even willing to admit about yourself. And he still accepts you and he still loves you. He still strives with you. He still walks with you. He guides you. He comforts you. He encourages you. He corrects you. And he expects you to do the exact same thing and display that to everyone else as well. Is everyone going to receive that? No, of course not. I don't live in a utopian world where everyone receives the counsel and encouragement. They don't. 
There'll be some that scorn you and walk away. There'll be some that run away that you're not going to get back. But, but continue to walk, continue to persevere, continue to strive with those people because God calls you to do it. God's heart is large for the hurting people of this world. And he, and he shows it by calling you, his people, to do something about it. Three things just very, very quickly. Number one, realize this, that God intends to use what you have gone through, what you've gone through in your life to benefit others. Number two, consider. Consider the ways in which, um, in which God has used others to comfort you. All of us have been a recipient of someone else's love and touch in our lives. Every one of us. And how has God shown his comfort through you? And number three, reach to find others in our community who need a listening ear. Um, they're all around. All you have to do is just look around. Reach out. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to the people in the coffee shop. Talk to the people in the streets. And when you understand that people are going through difficulties, engage them. Say, listen, can you tell me what's going on in your life? And not so I can repeat it and, and have the latest rumors to share. I mean, we don't do that in this town, but in other towns they do that. And, and, but, but, but I want to just reach into your life and, and help you out and encourage you. And you begin to see the body of Christ strengthening and growing because we're encouraging one another. That's what Paul's talking about. Be a part of the redemptive work. Listen, be a part of the redemptive work that God is doing in the world by being encouragement and a, and a comfort to other people. Verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also our consolation also abounds through Christ. In other words, the more we suffer, the more Christ is shown. If you want to read more about that, go to chapter 4. It's all about that very thing. Verse 6, now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation. Talk about perspective. Paul says, now if we are afflicted, oh by the way, it's for your good. Do you view that about your own afflictions? If I'm afflicted, it's for your good. It's for some, the good of someone else. What about for me? I mean, I need some good too. No, God will comfort you. But it's for the good of other people because Paul knew that God would take him through it and he in turn would, would comfort the other people and they would com be comforting one another. I love, I love that. You know, and, and he, he addresses the fallacy that Christian leaders don't face trials. They do. Your pastors get sick. They do. That's the reality of the occasion of this letter, that leaders get sick. And finally, in verse 7, our hope for you is steadfast because we know this, that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Paul's hope was sure, just as Christ's comforts made him stand firm, so that um, so would God's comfort and help. Um, help the Corinthians to stand firm as well. And Paul's encouragement through others would be passed on to the Corinthian people as well. Okay, I am, I am really out of time here. Um, verses 8 through 11, I'm going to commend the reading of those to you. And I want you to see that because in those verses there's a picture of Paul saying, this is how it really looks in my own life. This is the, the own my own example that I came through. And all of this resulted in a thanksgiving to God, that all of the, all the trials and all the hurts and always ended up in a thanksgiving to God because God's people came alongside someone else. So when you come alongside someone else who's hurting, listen, 
that person thanks and praises God. And that makes it worthwhile. That God is being glorified through the things that are happening in your life. Let's pray together. Father, give us the courage um, in the face of, of hearing 2 Corinthians 1 to see that the incredible example, the testimony this is to a world, the, the, the world system says kill those who are hurting and push them off into the, over the cliff and let them die. And, and you say, know what, you know, a smoking flax I will not quench, a broken reed I will not break, but you nurture and nurse us back to health and you fan the flame and the life of the Spirit in us, Lord. Help us to have the same heart and love for the broken and hurted and afflicted as you do, that, in, that it would all result in the praise and glory to you. Um, just commit this to you, Father, and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at hendersonmbchurch.com or email me directly at luke at hendersonmbchurch.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.